Welcome back or to the Sleep Research Society podcast. My name is Jesse Cook and I serve as host of the Sleep Research Society podcast, which is purposed to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian science. Before diving into today's episode, it is critical for me to emphasize that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. Also, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. And now for an orientation to the topic of focus for today's episode. Sleep problems and disorders are highly prevalent among the general population. For example, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that about one-third of the general population is affected by insufficient sleep duration. Similar prevalence estimates have been attributed to other sleep problems, such as poor sleep quality, as well as daytime sleepiness, which could be considered a consequence of poor sleep health. Furthermore, estimates suggest that 50 to 70 million people in the United States have ongoing sleep disorders. As such, accessible and effective care for sleep problems and disorders is critically important. Insomnia is one of the most common sleep problems and disorders. At any given time, insomnia symptoms have been estimated to affect about 30% of the general population, with approximately 10% meeting criteria for insomnia disorder. Encouragingly, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, or CBTI, has been shown to be highly efficacious for improving sleep continuity and overall sleep health in patients experiencing insomnia with or without other physical and mental health comorbidities. CBTI is often comparable or more effective than pharmacologic interventions in the short term and generally displays better durability of treatment effects longitudinally. This has resulted in CBTI being recognized as the frontline treatment for insomnia. However, the scope of the insomnia problem far surpasses the supply and availability of trained CBTI providers. Thus, there was a major need to expand the reach of CBTI training to enhance the care of patients worldwide. Considering that insomnia and mental health problems share an intimate, bidirectional relationship that often results in comorbid presentation of both insomnia and mental health problems, it seems logical to establish foundational CBTI competency and mental health providers, such as psychologists. Problematically, graduate and medical training programs minimally, if at all, provide education and training on sleep, let alone specific devoted time to insomnia and CBTI necessary for foundational competency. For example, Australian graduate students receive a median of only one hour of sleep education, with nearly half reporting no sleep education at all. In the United States, only 6% of clinical psychology programs offer a formal course in sleep. Worldwide, medical students receive only an average of 2.5 hours of sleep education across their medical degree. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Haley Meeklem to discuss the recently published article in the journal Sleep entitled, Disseminating Sleep Education to Graduate Psychology Programs Online, a Knowledge Translation Study to Improve the Management of Insomnia. This study aimed to evaluate the implementation of a large-scale rollout of the Sleep Psychology Workshop, a previously validated behavioral sleep medicine education program into graduate psychology programs across Victoria, Australia. 
I hope you enjoy. Before diving into the interview portion of today's episode, here is a brief background on Dr. Haley Meeklin. Dr. Haley Meeklin is an Australian sleep psychologist and clinical researcher with a special interest in insomnia and behavioral sleep medicine. Haley has been endorsed as a diplomat in behavioral sleep medicine by the Board of Behavioral Sleep Medicine in the United States. Haley works part-time as a sleep psychologist at St. Vincent's Hospital Sleep Center and recently completed her PhD in psychology at Monash University. Her PhD research focused on improving sleep education for trainee psychologists to ensure that all psychologists receive the essential sleep knowledge and skills they need to manage insomnia in clinical practice. She is also interested in improving our understanding and treatment of insomnia broadly. So, without further ado, let's dive into my discussion with Dr. Haley Meeklum, unpacking their recent publication in the journal Sleep, entitled Disseminating Sleep Education to Graduate Psychology Programs Online, a Knowledge Translation Study to Improve the Management of Insomnia. And now for the interview portion of today's episode. Dr. Haley Meeklum, welcome to the Sleep Research Society podcast. I must say, you've had such a notable presence on social media platforms for, I don't know, half a decade, and I've never had the opportunity to meet you. And selfishly, when I saw the manuscript come through the pipeline, not only was the topic of notable interest and something that warranted attention, but it afforded me the opportunity to rope you in for an hour-long conversation. So I feel like the huge winner today. Sorry, listeners. I am the huge winner. And I know this is a very special time in your life as well. We're going to be talking about training in general. And you just completed your own PhD program. So major kudos on that front. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that. But before going any further, I must ask, how are you doing today? Thanks, Jesse, for an awesome intro. Uh, lovely to be here. And so I'm very excited to meet you. We've been on Twitter and interacting for, for many years, and it's lovely to, you know, officially meet. Um, so I'm very well today. It's uh, morning here in, in, in Melbourne, Australia. And um, yeah, thrilled to, to just be here and able to talk about my sleep research and uh, yeah, get to meet you. So, so doing really well. Yeah, so groovy. And we are doing a bit of time traveling. You're on a Friday. I'm on a Thursday, but it works out well because when we get to the keyword association, I actually told you I'd give them a day in advance. And technically I did because I did them today, which is Thursday and you're in Friday. So I didn't mess up at all. Right. And maybe one day we'll actually meet in person. Uh, maybe. I think we're kind of evolving. We have the keyboard based communication down via Twitter. Now we're using Zoom to actually have a web based and Perhaps in the future, we'll actually be in person. I look forward to that moment. And again, congratulations on completing a remarkable milestone. Uh, how has life been on the other side of your PhD? I love my PhD. I, I sort of, I guess, mature age student, kind of, I'd done some other things and, and, and then came back to PhD a little bit later. And I had a, had a ball and I had a wonderful supervisor, Melinda Jackson, and so others in my team. And, and so it was a, a really just, fabulous time delving into research, doing the things I was really passionate about. And yeah, other side, it's been a bit crazy. Uh, so yeah, sort of, I guess, once it all comes to the end and and um, yeah, sort of trying to set up a, a bit more of a, a business focused on doing some more um, behavioral sleep medicine, sort of broader dissemination things, um, but more so like, uh, you know, with people 
specifically rather than training healthcare providers, which we're talking about, and, and just still I'm working in my clinic at St Vincent's Hospital, and um, yeah, still doing a lot with the Australasian Sleep Association here. So yeah, it's just a lot going on. Instead of just one track mind on the PhD, it's yeah, sort of lots of different things. But it's it's fun and exciting. But yes, still quite busy. You know, as is expected with you. Um, some people, when they finish their programs, they go and run off to the mountains for six months or something like that. And truthfully, I hoped to be able to do something like that, but that's not in the cards for me. And I'm in some ways following your path and just continuing to bounce around and do a bunch of stuff. But I think that's us, right? In some ways that that makes us satisfied, complete, and it's about knowing yourself. So kudos to you. And it's amazing that you're taking on new things that you've previously never even explored in the business world. That's amazing. Now, before we open the show, I gave the listeners a background. Thank you for your biography. Always very helpful. Um, but, you know, I actually get feedback on this. The listeners really love to hear from the guests themselves, having them unpack their actual journey to this point. So you've accomplished a lot. Uh, so many notable accomplishments. So I think we'll take the next two hours to unpack all of that. No, uh, just kidding. But can you give the listeners kind of an overview of how you got to this point in sleep and circadian research? Yeah, it's uh, I think as most people say, sleep was never the the one thing I was dreaming about since when I was a child, and it sort of was a bit of a roundabout path to get there. Um, but my journey started, I guess, during my undergrad science degree at, at Melbourne Uni. Um, in third year, I was doing a sort of a double uh, psychology and behavioural neuroscience major, and we had an opportunity to delve deeper into one topic, and sleep was there as one topic and I had experienced this recurring bout of insomnia during exam time in, in undergrad. So I thought, oh, I'll learn a bit about what's happening. And I was just really curious and, and did a project with Dr. Christian Nicholas at the University of Melbourne um, to learn much more about sleep. And I was just fascinated. You know, it was something I, you know, instead of just learning for an exam, I was delving into all the research, just, you know, wow, this, how sleep works. And, um, you know, what kind of when you're not sleeping well, like, it's kind of like do the opposite of what your instincts are. And it's not something you can easily find. So I just, yeah, I was so captivated by it. And it just, you know, counterintuitively made a lot of sense. Yeah, I just loved it. So I never really thought about it as a career, though. It was um, at that time I was much more interested in organisational psychology and, um, you know, I think I asked Christian a few times, you know, if you wanted to get into sleep here, what do you do? It's like either work in a sleep lab or if you're interested in sleep research, head to America because in Australia there wasn't a lot happening back then. Um, so, yeah, I went out and I worked uh, I worked for an organisational psychology company sort of in recruitment and after that um, went to work uh, more in welfare and Department of Human Services and then I enrolled into my psychology master's degree. So in Australia here, it's a little different. Um, you know, we can register as a psychologist after a master's degree. And, and so I was doing that and I really wanted something to specialise in. I just realised my brain likes to really focus and obsess on one particular thing rather than being a bit of a jack of all trades. Um, so, you know, and I was just thinking, you know, what do I just love reading about, learning about that I could do all day, every day? And my answer was sleep. So um, from there, I, I got back in contact with Christian at Melbourne Uni and he sort of pointed me to um, Dr Moira Junger who's now the CEO of the Sleep Health Foundation here in Australia. She sort of took me under her wing, um, you know, kind of helped me explore some career ideas and options um, and I got a job as a research assistant um, on a sleep research project looking at sleep apnea and spinal cord injury and I just had the best time doing that job. It was such a great team, you know, kind of 
going around doing sleep studies at people's homes all around Melbourne. Um, you know, it just it was such a such a different job experience that I'd ever had before. And um, yeah, I just thought this is it for me. And so I did my placements at an insomnia clinic. I did my um, thesis on an online or digital CBTI program. And then once I graduated my master's and registered as a psychologist, I was very lucky to get my first job at Melbourne Sleep Disorder Centre, uh, which here um, really kind of advanced um, sleep centre for, I guess, both respiratory and non-respiratory sleep disorders and sort of was mentored by uh, Moira Junger and um, Dr. David Cunnington, who at that time was the only uh, sort of sleep physician here um, that was endorsed, I guess, as a diplomat in behavioural sleep medicine. So I got really sort of, uh, yeah, really into sleep, great training, and um, also got had the opportunity to work at Monash with Professor Sean Drummond and, and kind of going through um, his project REST, looking at couples and um, doing CBTI with couples. So that's kind of, yeah, how I, I got into the clinical world. And it just, yeah, I think it was just, you know, trying lots of different careers and ideas and just kept coming back to sleep. So, yeah, not a, not a straightforward path, but, um, yeah, one I've had a lot of fun along the way and, and really met some really wonderful people and um, who are all so passionate about what they do. I think it really just keeps the excitement going in this space. Absolutely beautiful and remarkable. And at the foundation of your journey is a sleep class. Right. And similar to myself, as I've shared many a time, that's what directed me and kind of fueled me, propelled me starting at the University of Arizona. Shout out to Sean Drummond. We did not overlap there, uh, but we began our journeys there uh, through Dr. Richard Bootson and it opened my eyes similar to you. And I must imagine some of that, you know, this propelling you to the path you've been on the success in some ways is leading you to this research program that we're going to kind of unpack today where you're in some ways, providing classes to others. You're taking sleep knowledge and making it more accessible there. And it's like you've come full circle on that front. So that's got to be very fulfilling in that regard. And it's just so amazing. I, the, the, I wouldn't call it emergence, but just the evolution uh, and the momentum of research that's growing out in Australia is just uh, super exciting. Great to see that out there as well. And I'm almost afraid to ask this question because I just have to imagine the answer is you don't have free time at all, just based on what you unpack there. But when you're not doing all the amazing things professionally, you know, you love what you do. So that in itself is a hobby and an interest, which is a blessing in its own right. But you're not advancing the frontier of sleep and circadian research or treating clients with their sleep problems. What do you do in your spare time? Yeah, well, look, I am a bit of a sleep nerd, so I do like to keep reading about sleep. (laughs) But uh, look, I've got a wonderful little dog. His name's Kevin. Uh, we talk about pets of sleep on Twitter. So he does take up quite a bit of my time uh, and, and keeps my rhythms on track. He likes to go for his walk first thing in the morning. <laughs> so lots of light exposure in the morning. Um, so yeah, I spend a lot of time just, you know, a bit of a homebody these days. I uh, love to, yeah, hang out with my dog, uh, always watching movies and Netflix and, and those sorts of things. And we do have a lot of uh, lovely nature spots in Melbourne. So kind of getting out to different parks and, and little areas just to, to have a bit of an explore. So so yeah, I know a lot of people like to do lots of action-packed things, but yeah, I'm a bit more of a homebody these days. <laughs> totally cool in my book. And I am also one of those weirdos who really enjoys looking up scientific literature, exploring a topic, whatever it may be. Uh, can't get enough. And shout out to Kevin. Now, not just a pet of sleep, but a pet of the podcast. I actually think the first pet of the podcast. And I love the name Kevin. My cat is named John. And people always find it funny that he's just a John. 
But yeah. I may bug you for a picture of Kevin if you're amenable. Maybe I can include that in the marketing as well. And Kevin can launch his career too. Definitely. Now, I'm not going to allow you to answer with being a sleep and circadian researcher or a clinician in sleep for these next questions at all. Because it seems like you found sleep later. So maybe the first one, you will naturally not answer that. But when you were a child, Haley, what did you aspire to be when you grew up? Yeah, I think it was always to do with animals. I wanted to be a vet or like an, a dog trainer. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that was definitely like an animal theme. I grew up in the country in, in here in Victoria and, yeah, had lots of animals and had pet cows and all these sorts of things. So I was always thinking about animals. It wasn't until I was a teenager we moved back to the city um, and thought, yes, maybe other career options might be better. <laughs> well, you know, I've actually always thought about trying to become a sleep provider for animals if they exist. You know, obstructive sleep apnea is prevalent yeah. in like pugs, right? Uh, my father's actually a veterinarian and I spent three years working in a vet clinic and it was really cool. I actually thought about doing that for a while too. Um, but then I like to talk to people too much, I found. And <laughs> yeah, I like the conversation back. But that's very cool that we align there. And um, if you weren't, again, a sleep and circadian researcher or clinician at this point, then what career would you have? Gosh, I think I've done I've done quite a few different careers, so I'm pretty set <laughs> that I found the right the right space. But look, you know, I could have like a doggy resort or a you know kind of a professional dog walker. They actually maybe make more money than PhD students, <laughs> I think, at this point in time. So, so look, maybe maybe that could have been an option on the cards. <laughs> well, that's fantastic, and another episode of the SRS podcast. It only takes us 10 or so minutes to get in before we start talking all things animals. So thank you for that. But we'll transition a little bit from the animals to a little bit more of the science here. And we'll play our favorite game of keyword association. And Haley, um, as I told you, the words are now there. You've had about an hour to prep. Are you ready, Haley, for the keyword association? Sure, let's do it. I think you could be a little more enthusiastic, but I'll take it. All right. <laughs> here comes the first term. Accessibility to sleep training. Going to say my mission. <laughs> well done. Thank you for making that your mission too. Next term, sleep and mental health. Bidirectional. Just all, all mental health providers need to know about sleep. So true. Intimate, bidirectional, complex. Very well said. And last one here to land our keyword association, knowledge versus competency. Oh, yeah. So discrepancy uh, It's the first one that comes to mind. We can, we can, you know, be so knowledgeable about a topic, watch it, but it's not until we do it and we get feedback that we actually kind of master the skills. So got to bridge that gap. I think it's very well said. And we're definitely going to circle back to that later. You know, it's certainly a key theme and you know it well when you're training people that there's a, a difference there and it's delicate balance. And you often don't know, right? when knowledge becomes competency. For instance, I know how to change a bike tire, but when I actually have to do it in practice, I'm awful at it, right? And so there's that's the delicacy on that front. Uh, so great job there with the keyword association. So as I mentioned in the introduction, today's episode is going to focus specifically on your and your colleague's recent investigation published in Sleep, which is entitled Disseminating Sleep Education to Graduate Psychology Programs Online a knowledge translation study to improve the management of insomnia. And initially, listeners, I'm going to ask Haley to provide, you know, high level 10,000 foot view of the investigation. 
before we dive a little bit deeper into the weeds of the methodology, findings, and of course, the implications. So, Haley, why don't you get us started with our 10,000-foot view here? Can you please, you know, give us the rationale? And we have a passion for this, but what specifically fueled you to perform this research? Well, it was mainly my my work in, in clinic at, at Melbourne Sleep Disorder Centre. Um, this was sort of before I went back to PhD, I was working with clients in the sleep psychology clinic. And every client that came through had seen multiple mental health providers, multiple psychologists, as well as physicians in their journey to finally getting through to a sleep clinic. And I just thought, gosh, you know, they've spent so much money, so many years still struggling with these issues. And they've seen so many healthcare providers over, you know, these years. And no one's mentioned the word cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. No one's addressed some of those unhelpful beliefs that come up about sleep. Never, in particular, never heard about sleep restriction therapy. So it was just for me, it was like, you know, I was exploring the idea of going back to do a research PhD. And I thought, you know, this is something that, you know, we all know that we need it, but it's this this translation isn't happening. So, it, you know, when looking at, at topics, uh, you know, I just thought this is something that, you know, with my training already as a psychologist working in sleep um, with some of, I guess, the knowledge and skills um, to, you know, can we design something to do a bit of an assessment of where mental health practitioners, knowledge and skills around sleep are, um, but can we actually do something about it? Can we design an intervention and see if it helps? Get, you know, improve that management of insomnia. So that's really, yeah, where, where it started. And yeah, got in, got the scholarship into PhD and, and away we went. <laughs> that's outstanding. And, and it's really interesting because we talk about evidence-based treatments a lot, at least in my training programs, I'm sure is yours as well. But we don't really talk so much about like evidence-based training programs, right? And what you're doing in some ways is creating an evidence-based training programs that improves the dissemination of evidence-based treatments. And that to me is just like pure synergy and Yahtzee in some ways. So well done on that front, major kudos. And with this particular investigation, what sort of design related methodology did you use to kind of go after this? Yeah, look, thank you. Um, and it was definitely, I had a great team. We've got a lot of people on this research team, as well as my my PhD panels that have helped in designing this. But we wanted to do something a little bit different. You know, a lot of the the research that's out there that looks at, you know, can we train healthcare providers in a sleep intervention, really just, uh, I guess, not just, but, but focus on effectiveness. So did this intervention improve knowledge to improve skills but for real translation to happen we've got to look at that much more broader setting level you know how people will actually take to this intervention will they use it is it do they feel it's needed in their training and how do we support that maintenance of skills so we had one of my um, colleagues Dr Marnie Greco and she um, I guess has worked in knowledge translation and she brought in this idea of using a knowledge translation sort of theory to really uh, I guess underpin our work so we use what's called the re-aim and I'll talk a little bit more about that as we go but it's sort of one of the most widely used knowledge translation frameworks to really set up our study so we could go beyond just individual effectiveness data into this more setting level implementation. So we look at essentially not just once this research project's finished and, and it all stops, but how can we support this work moving into the future? Beautifully said. And I had never heard, you know, I'm very naive on many things. I had never even heard of the reAIM framework, but it definitely caught my attention. I thought it was a nice 
structure to build upon, a nice framework, if you will, to build this what you were trying to accomplish. So it includes reach, effectiveness, adoption, implementation, and maintenance. And maybe this would be a good time to just, you know, unpack that a little further if you want to. You know, how does that kind of shape your approach to connecting with certain individuals, connecting with programs, um, assessing or actually distributing the actual workshop itself, and then evaluating not just their immediacy of effects, but also kind of the durability, long-term and actual applicability? Yeah, it really helped, I guess, set out the measures that we were going to collect for one. <laughs> um, you know, it, when we think about reach, it's, you know, how how many people in our target population did we reach? And if I wasn't doing this study, I would have, you know, we would have just gone out to the universities and said, yay, we've had, you know, 313 students completed. Woohoo, that must be a big chunk of people. That's great. But it actually got us to think about, well, how do we work out how many are in our actual target population and what percentage are we actually connecting with? And so we we went to our um, healthcare regulator, um, you know, information database with how many provisionally registered psychologists there are. So psychologists still in that training program and comparing the number of students that that came through our program with that number. So we sort of, you know, got a sort of more a measure of true reach. So that was one, you know, in terms of effectiveness. Um, so this was, I guess, probably what we would have collected anyway. So we're thinking about improvements in sleep knowledge, you know, effectiveness of uh, the intervention in developing students' confidence, you know, how prepared they feel to actually use some of these sleep interventions. Um, and here, uh, you know, we didn't have competency-based measures, unfortunately, next iteration will, but this is probably where we, we put that in. For adoption, we were really interested in as well, like how many you know, psychology programs would actually adopt this intervention if it was offered. You know, it probably wouldn't have been, we would report some of these measures, but it wouldn't be one of our wouldn't have been one of our key focus areas. But from doing this work, we were able to go, okay, here are all the psychology programs in Victoria. How many are willing to actually put this into place? And we had 70% of those of programs in the state take it up. So we could say, yes, there is actually demand for this. And after the program, we had a lot of interest. So that adoption rate, we, we can be pretty sure there's, there's that need and, and programs will adopt. Um, when we look at implementation, it's you know ha- it's sort of a couple of levels. One is at that individual level. So as we implement these knowledge and skills, do students actually use it? Um, and as well, like you know, as we run this program at different sites, you know, does it follow the same sequence everywhere? Are there barriers and obstacles? Um, how do we overcome them? You know, you know, in thinking of sticking to the validity of a program, does anything happen which which changes that validity as as we roll it out to different sites? And how might we adapt future iterations of it to make sure it's consistently delivered, you know, in that sort of evidence-based manner across sites? So it's sort of like, you know, the, the post-workshop data and gathering all of that information. Um, but then I think, you know, this study, the, the one thing that I was really interested in was the maintenance. So long-term maintenance of these skills. You know, most studies will collect some long-term maintenance data. But for us, this is really where the focus is, is do students remember this information? And as they start to work with people in clinic, you know, as they finish their degrees, do they remember it? Do they use it? How much do they actually adhere, you know, to that evidence-based practice? And this was a real part of the study, which I think will set, you know, kind of the direction that we go through in future. We discuss a little bit more what we found. Beautiful. That's a pure mic drop right there. And I, I love the attention to maintenance, right? We we don't do enough maintenance assessment, whether that's in 
competency, knowledge, and training, or in any sort of treatment efficacy too, right? We often kind of put a pin in it after a couple of months, don't circle back, and we go, hey, that worked. But like, how long did it work for? And that's a really important thing. So I love that that was a big focus. And I'll give you the microphone again to really unpack this sleep psychology workshop, your intervention. And just for right now, you know, we'll give the listeners a bit of a teaser. It's this six hour, I think, online live interactive workshop. And I'm going to put this as the teaser listeners. It's more than just didactics. Stay tuned for that. Um, and yeah, as you said, you had a set of uh, outcomes that really align with the re-aim framework. And I just love that you were pulling on feedback from your participants as well, because obviously that can help enhance any sort of future iterations, understand the strengths, weaknesses, and that's always a beautiful thing. So great job there. Now, the really interesting stuff. What'd you find? Did it work? We did find that it worked very well. Um, we saw real, I guess, significant improvements in student sleep knowledge from pre to post workshop. So we broke our, our groups up. We had students in their fifth year of training. So that's sort of they've completed their undergrad and honours and they're into their master's program in that first year, um, sort of before they're out on placements and working with people. And they had really big improvements in their sleep knowledge from about sort of that 50% up to about 80% post workshop. We also had six-year students um, who were, you know, a year further into their training. They also um, were more from clinical programs rather than what we have professional psychology programs here. And they, their baseline sleep knowledge started a little bit higher. They were about the 60%, um, but they as well finished up at about 80% on our sleep psychology knowledge quiz. So we did see big improvements in sleep knowledge. We also saw significant improvements in their confidence um, to use an evidence-based intervention, their confidence to assess for a sleep problem problem, you know, to know what to do if a client has insomnia. So, um, you know, just in that subjective level of, of therapy, you know, trainee therapist skills in actually doing the work in sleep, you know, went from, I really don't know what I'm doing to, I feel like I know where I'm going. I feel like I know what I'm doing and I know where to look. I know, you know, I know the textbook I'm going to go and, and kind of, you know, go to, to put this into practice. So we saw really big improvements in that. We also saw a real love of sleep, <laughs> which was fantastic. We, we had, I think it was 100% of students thought all psychologists needed to know about sleep in their mental health work. You know, going from thinking, oh, sleep's just this thing that, oh, we just give some sleep hygiene advice and it'll be fine, to, wow, this is a huge area. We didn't understand that real bi-directional relationship and how critical it was to do specific sleep work. Um, and we had 94% of students also saying CBTI should be a critical part of postgraduate psychology training or graduate psychology training, um, you know, in, as you call it in the States. So we saw that real, um, yeah, I guess, affiliation with sleep. They got it. Um, and they also uh, were really keen to learn more. And they thought the workshop, um, we got really positive reviews for it, uh, that it was helpful to help develop their skills. And they, they really recommended that all students should go through it. So we had that positive feedback, um, which was really critical too. Sounds like an absolute party. Uh, you did something <laughs> there, you manipulated with their brains or something like that. No, when I was when I was actually reading the manuscript the first time and I got to that finding and it was just like two lines, it, but it was so beautiful. I actually put down the manuscript and did a happy dance. Like it was really awesome to see the, as you said, affiliation, but the appreciation as well. Um, because we, I will say, I'll speak from my journey. There's education that sleep and mental health problems often comorbidly exist. That's what 
you know, my training program really gave us. And my mentor was actually asked to give a talk, a one hour talk as part of a series of talks that was a course that's basically just exposing the uh, clinical students to the various comorbid relationships that exist, whether that's hypersomnia and depression, insomnia and depression, whatever it may be. But there's no education on what you do in these situations, how to assess for them, anything like that. And so the fact that you taught them that to some degree and they were interested in learning more, that just warms my heart so much. So great job there, whatever you did. And I also found it really awesome that the programs as a whole found you favorably. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think, you know, when you say have fun, like I had so much fun with these workshops. And and I remember in my training, like, you know, learning um, some act-based approaches. The things that really stuck with me was the things I actually practiced and did in role plays and, you know, that much more, um, you know, interactive, not just learning the info, actually doing it. So that's what I really wanted to do in this workshop was to have a lot of really practical exercises, you know, case formulations, um, kind of get the students actually using the skills, you know, instead of just sitting there and listening to me go on about sleep for six hours, you know, actually divided up with real practical activities. And the students really liked that part of it. And I think it was really critical critical to this. Um, so, you know, in a lot of the feedback we, we got, it's like they've actually gone away and, and used the two-process two model of sleep regulation role play with a client. You know, they, they when we've gone through taking a sleep history, they go, okay, I know what to ask and I know, you know, sort of, you know, instead of just going, so how's sleep going? You know, saying what time did you get into bed and how long did it take you to fall asleep? You know, just having more specific questions in their arsenal, um, they found really, really helpful. I absolutely love that. And I had questions for you because I was just envisioning this in my brain. What did that look like? Were these like breakout rooms in a Zoom session? Is that kind of how you did it? Yeah, for, for this online one, it was, yeah, breakout rooms. Um, we, we use them a lot. The original, so our original study, which was published in Behavioral Sleep Medicine on the pilot, we did that in person. So it was sort of like the students would break up and I'd, you know, go around and hear them do role plays. So breakout groups and I'd sort of drop in where I could. Um, and then we also had um, other activities. We'd listen to a case. We had a little case study audio and then we'd come together as a group and ask them to put together the formulation of kind of the perpetuating factors, you know, predisposing factors, perpetuating factors. Um, and then with sleep restriction therapy I sort of we had our case that we were working through and I'd get them to actually work out the calculations so you know spending you know 10-15 minutes actually working through and doing the maths because um, I think sleep restriction therapy is one it's you know it makes sense to when you hear about it but to actually work through with a client and do those maths in session is another thing so actually yeah kind of doing that as a group and, and getting their numbers and, and working out if there were you know any discrepancies um, how we might might work that out. I love it. And there's definitely nuance to all of this that you and I, as we keep going through our training too, and handle more complex patient phenotypes and stuff that you obviously can't embed into these workshops per se. And we'll talk about that coming up here in a second. So we'll use this as an opportunity to put a pin in the results and we'll transition to our deeper dive, if you will. And we've unpacked the sleep psychology workshop and it sounds marvelous. Like I honestly want to go through it just to have the fun and the party and, and do some breakout rooms. And I mean, calculate come on don't we have excel spreadsheets and stuff <laughs> that can just do it for me but anyways uh, i love the the old traditional fashion here you did as a component of your study provide 
the opportunity for feedback, which again, I love, right? I think that's fantastic, not just for your study team to post-talk evaluate how it went, but to get actual feedback from the participants. After you know completing the study, reviewing the outcomes, and digesting all that feedback, did you identify any sort of necessary revisions or targeted revisions or adjustments that you want to do going forward to the workshop? Yeah, we, we definitely did. Like, I think the biggest part will be how we support students post-workshop, um, you know, having opportunities for supervision, you know, to, to bring a difficult case. So, you know, where to from the workshop is one where we're going, this is really where we need to step up our game to improve that long-term maintenance. Doing things online, like we did notice some differences between students' evaluations of some activities in our pilot in person versus online. And so that two process, uh, like the role play we did of the two process model, I think we've got to come back and do a little bit more setting up and and um, kind of help people with that. Because I think in person, I could really go and hear people and give some prompts, whereas in breakout groups, I can only get to a few. So it's, do we have a few more facilitators in attendance that can drop into these breakout groups and give a bit more guidance because I think you know that is one key thing if people can take away from these workshops and talk to to their clients about circadian rhythms and building up sleep pressure um, that can really make a huge difference and the other thing is as well like some people we we had a couple different delivery formats so it's six hours which could be broken up as two three-hour workshops or three two-hour workshops, and we just went with whatever the, the universities preferred. We did have more students in the, the two-by-three-hour workshop saying it was a lot of information overload, um, you know, that there was so much there, and, and these workshops as well for my own um, development, I, you know, if I kind of ran with the questions a little bit too much, we, we ran out of, of time and, and missed some key content. Not, not a huge amount, but, you know, we'd get a bit more time pressure for some elements of cognitive therapy, which I love and, you know, wanted to still make sure that everyone gets the same training. So it's, I guess, for us working out, do we take out a little bit of content to make sure we get to deep dive into the stuff that's really critical? Or do we perhaps extend this workshop um, and we've got to work with our universities to see, you know, how much time can they give us? Is there a, a format, you know, that that will be most favourable to them to make sure we get this in, but without overloading students? I didn't have a structured manual um, that students could take away with sort of like, you know, a CBTI kind of protocol. And students were really asking for that. They, they did come back and look at the slides and, and a lot of the references that we gave. But, you know, for the next iteration, we'll definitely have much more formalised kind of manual that people can easily come back to and, you know, pick up. And, you know, I always think it might be, you know, not for a year, two years till they're working with someone that, that you know, they go, hold on, this is, you know, this is chronic insomnia. I, you know, I remember there was there was more than sleep hygiene here and I remember we got a manual and I've got it saved. Um, I'll go to that now. You know, so just having it really easy for people. They don't have to think, you know, or at least, a you know, a, a website where we can keep all this information and they can come and, and log into. Um, so they would be the, the, the real things that, that um, yeah, we would love to change in the next iteration of this. Absolutely beautiful. And in key factors, right? The individual's experience, we can give them the same content, but how it's delivered to them, the modality, the various characteristics of it, that's going to play a key role in their digestion of it and potentially their willingness to apply it. And that kind of leads me into a point here that I'm going to steal your words first. I thought this was poetic, by the way. Uh, There's a couple of quotes where I was like, dang, this one is straight (laughs) from the manuscript and it's, 
Unfortunately, knowledge does not equal competency, nor does knowledge alone lead to behavioral change. And I think this was in the context of sleep restriction therapy and applying it where, if I remember correctly, and I could be remiss, but I think the participants demonstrated the knowledge of sleep restriction therapy. Uh, They were able to, even in the maintenance assessment, they could demonstrate the knowledge of it, but there was an uneasiness, if I remember correctly, to actually applying it. And I think that's totally reasonable because you can do some damage, right? Like sleep restriction therapy can lead to excessive sleepiness. And when it's not delivered appropriately, it can lead to a hazard to the client. So that's when I read it, I probably was like, okay, well, maybe they were just, you know, trepid to actually apply in that context. Was that kind of your take home between the divergence between the knowledge and the competency part? Definitely. And I think we've got to thank Lisa Meltzer for that wonderful line. I think she she put that one in the in the manuscript. So it was definitely one thing that I went, whoa, you know, take that away. They're, they're remembering the skills, uh, like they're remembering that knowledge, but that hesitancy to put it in practice. And I remember in the review process for, um, you know, going at sleep and we were, we had the wonderful reviewers who really asked some great questions to, to prompt us to, to think about this. And that was one question. It's like, you know, what do we think's happening? You know, is it that they haven't worked with people experiencing sleep problems to put this into practice? Or is there something else? And I would say, like, we had, uh, you know, over 50% of those students saying, I have seen clients with with insomnia. Um, Actually, no, it was higher than that. I think they've said, yeah, insomnia was definitely the most common sleep presentation. It might actually be 70% now I think about it. Um, So really high. So there's definitely been the opportunity there. But where is that barrier to actually putting into practice? You know, and I think back to my training and it wasn't until, yeah, like I had someone holding my hand and going through supervision and noticing my hesitancy to be, you know, this person is scared to do sleep restriction therapy, um, you know, and that that kind of tendency to, to not want to put our clients, you know, into any more distress or anything like that. But as therapists, we hold that knowledge that if we can support them through this, we know that sleep's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better. And we have that experience of seeing it work. You know, we got, we see people that go from having the worst insomnia where they've experienced it for 20 years. You know, it's taken over their life. They're sleeping, you know, four or five hours a night. And then they do CBTI. They go through sleep restriction therapy. They have a really crappy, you know, couple of weeks but at the end of that they're sleeping through the you know they're sleeping more consistently their sleep's a lot more consolidated insomnia becomes this thing that doesn't take over their life so you know in in our experience working with this this population we see that it works and we get that confidence to go okay we're going to help you through this Whereas these students, and especially if they're not working with supervisors or in sleep clinics where they have that support, it can be pretty scary and daunting to put this into practice. And I and I sort of like to liken it to exposure therapy. You know, if you're working in, in an anxiety clinic and you're going through that structured hierarchy and you 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 know got to get that person to the, the to do the thing that they're most fearful of in the world, you know, therapists in that setting will still throughout training, you know, be a bit hesitant to do that until they have that real structured training that experience of it working working with a supervisor to support them through their own feelings you know as they go through this so it's sort of I really sort of liken sleep restriction therapy to exposure therapy and I think we can learn a lot from that training literature and how we can support students through this but I think to do that we need to have better mechanisms of providing more general supervision and support to students to put this into practice because we know that a lot of psychologists um, that are in those supervisory capacity they haven't done this work. They haven't 
you know, learnt the intricacies of CBTI to do this. So as a sleep community, we've we've got to create some some better processes and, and structures to do this. There was so much goodness in there. Uh, and you've given me a bridge to the next point that I'll circle back to in a second. First, I think my brain remembered where you got the 50 and 70% from. I think it was 55% initially before the workshop had seen a client with a sleep disorder or disturbance, but had not actually had any sort of education. And then when they came back for the maintenance, that was a 70%. So brilliant there. And I love what you described there. Um, and again, it goes back to my bike analogy with the flat tire. In my brain, I can walk myself through that process linearly. I still take my bike tire to REI to get it fixed. No, REI is not a sponsor. That's not a shout out. I just go there because I'm a member. And it's not because I'm fearful or it's because I'm fearful I'm going to do more damage than good to the bike. And if I had somebody there to help me a couple times, you know, be around me, guide me, I think I would have the comfort, as you're saying, with supervision to address that flat tire. And then, of course, there's really much more delicate situations with sleep restriction therapy where things are contraindicated. And that's where I think it can go really hazardously for someone who just has kind of a foundational knowledge. And that's where I would be terrified. You know, anytime you're working with somebody experiencing bipolar disorder or history or has manic features, or even just the ability to look for characteristics suggestive of untreated sleep apnea, those are more nuanced traits. And that's where I've always been like, yeah, sleep restriction therapy is great, but I think it's a really hard thing to feel comfortable with in the early stages. So I think it's very reasonable to see what you saw. And I love the idea of like, Hey, it's not about giving them different education. It's about providing them more support as they start to implement this stuff. So great thinking there. And you gave me the bridge. You gave it to me perfectly. And I don't know how you did this, but I thank you for that. So you said exposure therapy. And oftentimes in these training programs, these psychologists will get some sort of CBTA experience that includes a bit of exposure, or at least foundational understanding of why we need to engage with things that are fear-based, right? And at the core of that, is a desensitization. And in this, you're tackling insomnia, which is an extremely prevalent problem in society. Obstructive sleep apnea, also a highly prevalent problem in society. Now, we're not going to train people foundationally to detect, assess, steer them to sleep clinics, but could this eventually evolve in some capacity to provide some sort of like foundational CPAP desensitization training, because to me, that's like exactly the same as exposure therapy. Is that in any way a direction you may go in the future? Yeah, it's um, definitely so needed. And um, there's so, so many areas of sleep. I think, you know, insomnia, it's, you know, it's sort of like, I guess, in one way, it's a low hanging fruit. It's the most prevalent kind of problem. And we've got a great treatment and we we can go for it. But you're right, like, that's systematic desensitization. We've also got CBT for hypersomnia. And, and in this work, clients, that was one area they were so keen to learn more about, you know, we've got so many questions about hypersomnia. Um, so, you know, I think that's definitely an avenue to go down, whether I'm the person or not, not sure. But, you know, with the Australasian Sleep Association here, we are, you know, they, they have been doing some amazing work in this space. And we've got a lot of people here in Australia. So uh, shout out to Sarah Winter, Dr. Sarah Winter, who's um, she did her PhD on, on um, CPAP uh, adherence. And I think uh, Julie Tolson as well. They're doing some amazing work at the Austin looking at, at um, you know, bringing in in some more of that into the sleep lab there. So I think there's a few other people in this space that might be doing some really cool work in, in this area. Uh, but I think, 
for us, um, you know, if we're looking at how we actually deliver this training, you know, in this workshop, we have little bits about, you know, the different types of sleep disorders. And we do spend quite a bit of time talking about sleep apnea and how in a psychology clinic, you know, people are often referred for depression, but there could be un undiagnosed sleep apnea there. So we're giving people little prompts and, and um, we also teach them how, how and when to refer to sleep physicians for more assessment and linking and trying to link them in with, with the Australasian Sleep Association and Sleep Health Foundation so that if they do have these questions and want to learn more, there's places to go. Um, but, yeah, it would be a, a wonderful extension of this to have some offshoots. You know, and I know like the CBTI web guys um, in the States are doing some really fantastic work. They started with CBTI and now they're doing um, nightmares and, and other things. So, um, you know, I think we can look a lot to them and their models um, for how we might be able to get this, get these other aspects of sleep treatment out to, out, out to the people who work with clients directly. I think you are peeking over my shoulder or somehow are peering into my side notes because <laughs> I did want to give a shout out to CBTI web and I totally forgot that the participants were very interested in hypersomnia. I know you put that in the manuscript, but that's such warmed my heart since my research <laughs> program is built around kind of advancing yeah. the classification treatment and assessment of hypersomnia. So that was so amazing. And I think CBTH is a really approachable thing for a training psychologist because right now, you know, shout out Jason Ong, Jen Munt done a fantastic job. It's very much about management. And so a lot of the th things that you've, you know, taught about sleep schedules, things like that really apply. And then it's really about improving psychosocial functioning, which is just a core feature of being a psychologist in general. So I think it embeds very nicely. So great work there. And, you know, we've covered a lot uh, as we've gone through this, but this is kind of something I toyed around with and I hope you're comfortable. And if you're not, that's okay. And we can always just remove this. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I always like to ask the expert and you are the expert here, Haley, and I have my own thoughts and so on, but I always try and understand because obviously I'm biased, you're biased, we've fallen in love with this, we see how critical sleep is for overall health. And we also see that it's not, I wouldn't say, to become truly competent, it does take a lot of work and time. But to gain a foundational understanding, it's not rocket science, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're delivering a really strong amount of information and making people much more knowledgeable and comfortable in six hours. So I just have to ask, why do you think there remains a deficiency of sleep training in graduate and medical training programs, particularly in the programs that are in the context of mental health, when they're very likely to see patients presenting with these problems? Great question. And it's one, yes, I have definitely pondered <laughs> a lot during during this PhD. One of the, the challenges is, you know, we see knowledge translation is slow. It takes a lot of time for change to happen. And even if we think of the smaller level of behaviour change for, for ourselves, if we want to implement an exercise program, might take us a few goes to get there and, you know, we fall over. You know, it take, behaviour change takes time. Knowledge translation takes time. So the, uh, the data says that, you know, from the, the first, pub, I guess, the publishing of really good solid evidence-based guidelines it takes about 17 years for this information to become a standard part of clinical practice you know and, and for this paper I was doing some maths so we have a, the first sort of alludings to uh you know 
uh, I guess, multifaceted psychological behavioural interventions for sleep kind of coming out in 2006. But then the real strong, you know, American College of Physicians um, recommendation that CBTI is first-line treatment for insomnia in 2016. You know, so if we look at those early guidelines, we're at 17 years, but, you know, uh, the American College of Physicians really set that stage and seven years. So we still got a little bit of time. And I think like this area is really gaining momentum. But we've got to work really closely with, um, you know, the, the psychology educators. It's one thing to influence an individual program, but to get change across the board, you know, we need the research, we need the people backing it. And that maintenance is the real challenging part. You know, I know for this, um, for this project, you know, if I don't get funding to continue it, we stop here. So although there's been a lot of groups around the world that have done amazing work getting sleep into their own training programs, but if they resign and move on somewhere else, you know, unless there's some form of legislation is not the right word, (laughs) but, um, you know, some guideline within that psychology education to say sleep is an essential topic that needs to be covered, we might just be spinning our wheels a little bit more. So we really need to be lobbying a little bit more to here. It's called APAC, the um, Australian, um, uh, I think, Psychology Accreditation Council. You know, we really need to be going to them to say, hey, sleep is so fundamental for mental health and there's currently no guideline to say that it should be taught in mental health training programs how crazy is that what can we do to change it you know so we need to be getting up there to you know at that level for it to be you know a key component of of training Um, and also I think funding to continue this work (laughs) as well (laughs) beautifully said and there's so much good literature out there about how treating the sleep problem concurrently treats the mental health problem and so that's why I'm still stuck in my brain because to me it's so salient and i i'm almost defeated in some capacity because the information to me is out there but i love your passion and i love your vigor and to close down the manuscript portion of this um i'll ask you a question in a second but i have to use another one of your quotes maybe lisa Meltzer's, maybe somebody else's but it's just so beautifully said and it captures what you just said from the manuscript ideally sleep education should be a hurdle requirement for all graduate psychology students, ensuring that they possess basic behavioral sleep medicine knowledge and skills before graduation. Over my training period uh, in, in my recent program, they kept adding on classes, more core requirements, none of which were related to sleep. I grew very resentful and it wasn't the program's fault. That was uh, the oversight regulatory body that we have to answer to here in the States that was demanding these be part into our psychological programs. Not only was that overburdening students, but it was potentially missing the boat, right? We're not focusing on this key key topic here. So I love what you're saying. I support you all the way. And you and I talked a little bit about this pre-show. Hopefully there's more to come. You mentioned some grant funding. Uh, what's in the works? Are you, you know, trying to build on this further? Are you trying to test in a larger sample? What's the next game plan here? Yeah, the game plan is, so I've got a, what we call an investigator grant in here. Um, so I think I, I submitted my PhD on a Friday and had this grant due on a Monday. Um, so this would be for five years of funding to to roll this program out Australia-wide. So I have my fingers crossed, my toes crossed. Uh, I think I'll hear in the next month or two. It's low odds with any of this research funding, but be going for this and just keeping eyes out for, for other opportunities. Because my, my dream would be to have this 
you know, implemented and rolled out Australia-wide. Um, so we, we look to sort of use this REAM framework um, and kind of do a more kind of structured randomised controlled or cluster randomised controlled trial to roll this out around the country. So that's that's the goal there. Um, and so, yeah, fingers, toes, everything crossed. Um, yeah, looking at, at postdoc opportunities as well. But my uh, sort of... Um, also got an interest in um, how else can I get behavioural sleep medicine and, and insomnia treatment out to the public in a way that they don't have to wait for for years on a wait list to sort of see someone. So I've got into a, sort of an entrepreneurship program at the University of Melbourne, which is helping me to sort of um, establish some ideas for, for a business to hopefully do some online um, sleep programs, you know, online sleep masterclasses and things for people who may not yet be at that level where they're needing to see a psychologist, but, you know, I guess preventing that that you know, acute sleep problem from becoming chronic, uh, hopefully getting some more of this sort of evidence-based sleep information out there. So yeah, doing that, the the, the company is called My Better Sleep. Um, it's still in very early stages, um, but research, yeah, is definitely my passion and, and hopefully be able to do it, these two things moving forward. That's so fantastic. And I just, I don't know what to say, Haley. submitting your dissertation and then jumping and having the grant done right there, you know, for so many people, just getting that dissertation done is overwhelming in its own right and you're staring at two things that are overwhelming in their own right it's kudos to you and and major respect and i look forward to all the goodness that comes from this because obviously more accessibility even if it's still just foundational right at least they can provide help to some degree or know how to steer people to help and by steering people to help with their sleep problem or directly helping or also helping mental health and improving mental health across society maybe just australia selfishly for you guys, but still that leads to a happier and more productive and effective society. So I give you all my best wishes, my energy, I'll cross everything for you. Uh, before I let you go, I do have to thank you, Dr. Haley Meeklum. I'm just going to emphasize the doctor until we, you know, somebody kicks me off the stage. Uh, thank you for finding time. Clearly you don't have a ton based on what you're doing. Uh, I thank Kevin for affording the time as well. Kevin's the dog for those that jumped in later to discuss this investigation. And of course, to share your wisdom, I'll plug all your awesome uh, social media handles and stuff like that, or whatever you allow me to, if you're on social media, you're going to run into Haley at some point, but before I let you go, I do have the final question. And I tell people, Haley, I think it's the hardest question. You know, I take okay. the gloves off. I, I really just get down to the brass tacks and, and make your life very difficult here. Okay. So the question really is, Haley, if there are no constraints, if you're afforded unlimited funding, you know, there's no issues with time, there's no issues with recruitment, uh, all ethical things will be approved. You don't even have to be on Earth. Uh, shout out to, I think it was Catherine Chu who decided she, we were going to take it off the planet. Uh, so no, no constraints to explore any singular sleep or circadian research topic. Then what would you investigate? Well, firstly, I want to say thank you so much, Jesse, for having me here. It's been such so fun to talk about this work. And, and congratulations, Dr. Jesse Cook, as well, who also, uh, you know, done this journey recently. So congratulations. 
Um, but yeah, gosh, if I had, yeah, I guess unlimited funding all the time in the world, I'd still would do this project and, and roll out sleep education around Australia and maybe broader. But I would love to do some um, deeper sort of insomnia phenotyping work and, and look at a lot more physiological measures, uh, you know, kind of move out of the clinic a little bit more and into the lab and and, look, and become a bit more of a hardcore scientist. <laughs> you know, I, I love the work of um, sort of Yves Van Sommeren and Tessa Blunken um, in looking at sort of these different phenotypes. And it's just one thing, you know, we've got CBTI, which is such a great treatment, but, you know, order of, of you know, if, if someone's got super duper high anxiety and sleep reactivity, they might not be quite ready for sleep restriction therapy yet. And we might need to look at ACT-based interventions and some other things before we can get them there. And looking at, you know, different sensitivities, um, you know, to different stimuli, all these sorts of things. So, yeah, there's, there's lots of, I think we've still got, we've sort of gone from having some different phenotypes to putting it all in together as one. And I think there's, definitely um you know that that role of individual phenotyping and individual treatments and how we potentially use some more um kind of modeling to work out you know how we you know make our treatments more individualized and personalized you know and using technology to roll out these treatments as well so you know if i had a, an ai specialist and a, a you know a, amazing lab with people who could do all these things um yeah it could do some amazing work <laughs> Oh, I love it. And I'm not going to let you go now because now we have to spend an hour on personalized, <laughs> integrative, contemplative CBTI or pick CBTI uh, is what we're going to we're going to call it. Uh, no, fantastic, Haley. And again, uh, I'm glad it's true serendipity that we got to share this moment in some ways together. And uh, my first, I guess we'll call it e-meeting with you could have gone could not have gone better than I envisioned here. So uh, thank you so much again. And uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Jesse. And that concludes this episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for content or ways to enhance the podcast, then please feel free to send an email to sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Before officially closing down this episode, I would like to directly thank the leadership of the Sleep Research Society, as well as the board of directors for their support of this initiative. Additionally, I'd like to thank the Sleep Research Society Communications Committee for their efforts in the development and maintenance of this podcast. Also, I'd like to thank chronobiologist Dr. Rulof Hutt for graciously providing the podcast intro and outro music. Lastly, I'd like to thank the community of fantastic sleep and circadian researchers that comprise the Sleep Research Society, as well as all other listeners of this podcast. Thank you, and until next time, sleep well.